0: I always felt photography was like receiving a gift. And it's a gift from a stranger, a person who allows me to briefly enter their life and capture their moment with them. Without that access, without the permission of that person, I would never be able to get the photographs or be able to solicit change through the power of photojournalism.
1: Welcome to the Storytellers Network. I'm Dan. I'm your host. And uh, my gosh, I'm so excited to bring today's guest to you. He believes in the power of story as much as I do, uh, whether it's you know business and uh, wedding photography, whether it's working for National Geographic, whatever it is, uh, this guy is a storyteller. And, and I cannot wait for you to hear his story uh, and his advice and insight and everything. And before we do, a quick reminder, The website has great resources available, past episodes, and contact information to me. Simply visit thestorytellersnetwork.com for all of that. And if you're new and thinking about maybe subscribing, you can do so obviously on your podcast player of choice, but also text the word Storytellers to 31996. You'll have information on how to subscribe. Today's guest is someone who not only tells stories, but who captures and curates and shares others' stories. Uh, Robert Miller is an independent book author and photojournalist for National Geographic Books, among other things that he does. Uh, His projects include the book Veteran Voices, remarkable stories of heroism, sacrifice, and honor. I had the privilege of meeting Robert when he was a photographer for Nat Geo when Honor Flight flew our nation's oldest living veteran at that time, Emma Didlake of Detroit, Michigan, to Washington, D.C. for her Honor Flight. His photographs tell inspirational stories. It is my privilege to welcome Robert Miller to the show. So let's get to his stories. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking time. Uh, We are recording early in the morning, so thanks for getting up so early with me. You are so welcome. (laughs) Uh, So as I mentioned in my intro, Robert, you and I met when Honor Flight flew Emma Emma did like big mama to D.C. for her Honor Flight. and and your photographs, my gosh, they, they tell stories in their own photographs. So do you consider yourself a storyteller?
0: Oh, absolutely. I consider myself a visual storyteller by using my best equipment is obviously a camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time I uh, look at things, even if I don't have a camera around my neck, I'm always thinking about the perfect shot. I look at light. I look at darkness, how darkness affects light. And I look at all those compositions, and when you have people involved, I look at um, the people because most of the time they're animated, whether they're they're happy, sad, in turmoil or whatever. Um, And that becomes a part of the story, especially if you have a camera and you're allowed to click into them, you know, and be able to capture their story.
1: So it's hard to put that storyteller mantle down then, huh?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, I think about it all
1: the time because I believe that life
0: is a story and I believe that everybody experiences life because we're all here. We also experience life in such a way that a lot of it goes undocumented. And I think that's a real powerful thought because there's a lot of things in life that should be documented and there's a lot of things in life that aren't.
1: Yeah. And and it's funny because It, I mean, I, I can totally see where you're coming from. Life, life often is undocumented cause we're just kind of going through it, but, but we're also calling this generation, the most documented generation. Everybody has a cell phone camera. What's the difference in your mind between professional photographer and storyteller and simply grabbing photos with your phone?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I've asked that quite a bit. <coughs> What's interesting is that when you are using a camera, and you're out there purposely taking that photograph, you are armed with a reason to do that. Whether it is photojournalism, whether it is just candidness, um, you are there to grab that picture to create an emotion, to create a effect, to create a dialogue. And generally right now with the mass use of imaging that occurs on our phones, we're taking life's simplest moments very very candid moments and we're actually using those and capturing those and again there is an overlap for sure because you can obviously get some phenomenal photos and we see them all the time but what's really interesting about those photos most of those photos sit in an iphone and they're ever they're never ever used in regards to print occasionally they are but If you look at everybody's iPhone these days, I will bet that um, most of the pictures in that iPhone over a period of years either fade away, get destroyed, get changed, whatever, because a lot of people don't print those pictures. They're used for the instant moment, the Facebook, the Twitter. And I think that separates things. So iPhones are more more or less of – just a casual thing. Mm. Some use them obviously for documentary and different things like that. And what I use, my big camera, I'll call it the big or the professional one, is a deliberate, it is It is very deliberate. It is very, um, the, the picture I shoot is the end result that will come out. I will use that picture or I will use a subset of those pictures.
1: Mm. And uh, fascinating. And when When did you realize that you could, that you were a storyteller and you could do this for a living in some way? Was that go way back?
0: Uh, It does. I didn't know how to do this. Um, you know, when you get out of college, I had, I had an interesting, interesting college. Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And what happened was, uh, in my third year of college, I had an offer. (laughs) I had an offer from two areas. One was to go to work for Honeywell Photographic. They came to me in my third year of college because I was that good and I was very passionate about photography. And that job was a technical sales representative. And that means that I got, I would move to a city that had to be Chicago. I would get a company car expense account and uh, all the camera equipment you could ever want. And my job was to go around and use that camera equipment to show people how valuable Honeywell uh, photographic equipment was and then support sales. Dream job. I was making more than my father, and I had a company car. But I also had another opportunity pop my way. Believe it or not, it was with National Geographic. I was actually approached to become a photographer for them and maybe be whisked away to some remote part of the world and start to do photography for them and i really anguished with both and at that time i wasn't mature enough uh, to be able to handle moving away from my family my friends i just didn't have it in me and i was really frightened to go some other place that i didn't really feel comfortable with so with some pressure and obviously some family influence i took the um photographic job and said sayonado with the National Geographic job, never really getting fully indoctrinated what that job would be, but it was just prestigious, but it wasn't right that point for me. And once I did my job and I got into doing my Honeywell stuff, it merged into a German company called Rolli, which was one of the finest German cameras out there, uh, and I loved it. But what I realized really soon, that it was a commodity-type approach where Commodities were cameras, and eventually, you know, it was hard. They were, they were selling and stuff like that, but that's what you do every day. And I think at that point, I had this yearning to think about going back and saying, wow, I really wish I explored that. And I think that was the exact part in my life that, that suddenly turned me on to thinking, hey, there's something here for this. But again, as life goes, you get married, you can settle in. I have five grown kids now. At that time, when I was doing that, I had that fire, but I wasn't doing anything with it. It was years later when I picked up my camera, dove into the digital revolution, and started taking pictures and realized just how good I really was and what I can do with that.
1: Mm -hmm. And what is it, do you think, Robert, that sets you apart from... Uh, an average photographer to become that professional photographer who's very good at it. What is it that, what's that, what's that spark?
0: Um, I guess the spark is the ability for me. And I think it revolves around poverty. I think it revolves around people that have uh, less than what we have i 've been blessed to travel globally, and I travel a lot i 've been in probably close to eighty some countries and um, my camera is now all around every day you know when i 'm traveling is with me and Even some years ago, um, when I started doing all these pictures, you know I did the traditional wedding things to make things happen to you know, put money on the table when um, my kids were very, very small for weekends because I could make a lot of money doing weddings. And I used to, by the way, which I have to back regress a little bit, I used to do weddings when I was in college. Mm. And I would shoot two weddings a weekend, Friday and Saturday. And I worked for Hudson's O'Connor Studios. I was the youngest photographer they ever had. And I was making five, $600 a weekend. That was big money back then. Mm. And I loved it. And I even started, uh, I remember I brought my friends because I figured out at Roma Hall, which was in Pavonia, Michigan, because I used to shoot there a lot. I figured out that on the days or weekends I wasn't shooting weddings, I could go wedding crashing. And I brought my friends and we'd dress up and we'd go dancing and have fun with everybody. It was like <laughs> the movie that used to be out, you know, the wedding crashers. I yeah. think I was one of the originals to do that. <laughs> but, but, but going back to all this, um, it's, it's, You know, there was something there other than weddings. I started to look at things differently. I shot my landscapes. I did my beautiful pictures. I experimented. But it was going back to being exposed to other parts of the world, to extreme poverty, people that are really having a tough time, that really set me apart. And that's where I started focusing, which obviously led into Uh, like doing pictures of veterans, because that's kind of a transition of where things have went. But I always felt photography was like receiving a gift. And it's a gift from a stranger, a person who allows me to briefly enter their life and capture their moment with them. Without that access, without the permission of that person, I would never be able to get the photographs or be able to solicit change through the power of photojournalism and what I mean by that is that when I been walking through the slums of Delhi in India and going to Varnasi which is a ancient burial city where people bring their dead loved ones bathe them in the Ganges River and then they um, take all their life savings and they buy a hundred 20 pounds worth of wood. And right at the base of what they call the gats, they take their loved ones, they're wrapped in shrouds and has flowers and they pile this wood upon them, and the family lights a fire and cremates them over the next 20-some hours. And then watching that family grieve and celebrate this person's life, you start to realize how ghastly that is because we don't do those type of things, and I love those type of pictures, But you also realize that they have different beliefs that we don't. And that gives you another opportunity to take some pictures or a subject matter. And then when the body is fully burned, they shove the ashes. And most of the time, the body is burned, but there's a lot of times it isn't fully burned. And they'll shove that ashes into the Ganses River. And that's the final resting place. And there might be a hundred of these fires burning at one time so the smoke and all that I mean it's, it's a pretty challenging place so if you start to look at things like that and you start to be able to communicate those type of images um, I think that's what separates you a little bit differently from other people that have an iPhone in your pocket you really have to use the power of photography and not be afraid of it to communicate with it it's kind of like a a spontaneous collaboration that happens between me and my subject. You know, hmm. I love being allowed access into their world. If it's only for a moment, that's great. But telling stories that need to be told that aren't being told by using my camera and to give people I'm photographing a voice so they can be heard visually. That's all it takes. Hmm.
1: So they can be heard visually. is it, It's, I mean, it's an old cliche, but, a picture's worth a thousand words, but it really is, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It yeah
0: its It really is. I, I just, I, I, every day I just look at opportunities to take a picture. And whether it's landscape, it's just great. Everybody does landscapes. And I have some good ones. But I do have some really unique ones, like time exposure on a Great Lakes freighter uh, that's doing a 180-degree turnaround in the Detroit Rouge complex at night. I mean, it's just a gorgeous picture, Mm. and um, I love doing those type of things, and and working and and seeing the unseen is like photographing a balloon as it's breaking at the moment of uh, a dart is entering the balloon, and being able to time that such a way that you can actually see the beauty that we never really see. Mm. And I started doing those type of pictures back in 1976, by using some innovation with light using light to stop the action of the picture. Hmm. But now that's very common. You can buy devices that can do that because technology marches on and and things that we thought were novel way back when suddenly become normal. So we're used to seeing these extreme extreme photographs that are really unique because we're bombarded by those things today because of technology. Hmm. But what we still marvel at is is people in their situation whether it's good bad ugly sad we still marvel and take time and say whoa we that's something different than what i'm experiencing
1: Mm -hmm. yeah do you think that's what makes storytelling so powerful is being able to see the other person's world does that make sense
0: Yeah, I I believe it is. I believe that's really a part of it all. Being able to see and being able for a moment to take that person's world and whether it's a series of pictures or maybe just that one picture and being able to take that and being able to write some dialogue around that picture and share that. That's what really brought me to uh, doing the mass amount of work as I did with the uh, United States and actually global veterans from all wars from World War II forward. And that's what allowed me to go into understanding these veterans and write a 750 word overview on a unique story or situation with a veteran and being able to take that one photograph, which Obviously there was many, many photographs taken of that one veteran, but you choose the right photograph along with the dialogue that is given. And you combine those two as an art and you're able to publish 72 of those veterans in a book that gets internationally published by National Geographic called Portrait Service. That is, it's, it was a really cool adventure to do that. And it was really humbling to do that because obviously you and I met uh, doing something that we love, supporting and acknowledging United States military veterans. And veterans are special people. I don't know if I can do that or could have done that. My dad was a veteran and my first book, believe it or not, was about my father. It was called Hidden Health. And I decided to write that book without any visuals because um, I refound found his World War II POW journal after he died, that my mom forgot about, and my dad was captured five days into um, after the landing in Omaha Beach. Actually, he landed five days after the initial D-Day invasion. Hmm. He made it all the way to a small town in Normandy, France, called Mortain, and that was on August 6, uh, 1944. And at that big battle that night, he was actually captured by the Nazis. And then he was marched for 52 days and thrown in a Stalag 7A camp near um, Munich, Germany, 825 miles. So that was a story in itself that kind of spurred, I needed to do that story, which I did, which then propelled me to really start combining writing with pictures. And I found my knack and I found my tag that I wanted to take.
1: Hmm. What was that like telling your dad's story? Ooh, brutal um,
0: my dad when I grew up never ever talked about war but I knew he had a secret and I did know he was a POW because one morning it was in June my dad used to leave at 5 o'clock to go to work and my mom was the quintessential 50s mom complete with the dress apron on she was absolutely beautiful my mom um, you would think she's a model And she was outside at 6.30 a.m. hanging laundry. And I remember waking up because the night before I heard my dad having a horrible nightmare. And nightmares with my dad were very common. And I remember hearing P-O-W, POW, P-O-W, P-O-W. And I'm going, whoa, what is that? I had no idea. So I remember running out. I dressed and I ran out. My mom was hanging laundry. And she was putting the sheets up with the wooden clothespins. And I remember grabbing her dress and her apron and pulling on her because I was still small, I was probably seven. And I said, mom, mom, what is Dad was crying last night. What was POW? And I remember my mom froze. And then she hung the rest of it up there and she turned around and she bent down to my level and put her hands on my shoulder and she looked me in the eye and she told me that, yeah, POW means prisoner of war and your father was a prisoner of war. And explained to me briefly just what that was, which I already knew what it was, and asked me if I would not talk about it with him because it was much too painful, and he gave a lot of himself so that we could be free in others. I remember that statement. So you go through your life knowing this, and it was sort of like a rub between my dad and I, and it never was communicated. I kind of asked him a couple of times. It was just too painful. So I stayed away. So after he passed unexpectedly in 94, the journal was found. and There was a beat up tattered YMCA journal that had all his drawings, had food labels that he peeled off of cans when he was starving in prison camp. He had everything you could ever imagine plus the horrific things that happened to him. And he was able to keep that from the spying eyes of the the Nazis, and he literally was in this camp, escaped twice, was tortured and brutalized, and then was actually moved to a southern camp in Austria, and then was liberated by General Patton, believe it or not, um, when the war ended, and um, was able to come home, but to obviously have that huge scar on him, mm. and it was crazy, but I was very proud of him, unfortunately, I could never tell him so i had the opportunity because i was traveling to europe quite a bit for business quite a bit so i did like 20-some trips and over those 20-some trips i would combine weekends and i researched every place that my dad was because my mom was still alive and i was getting information from her and i was able to document and meet all the people that had any assemblance with his army uh, regiment for 30th Infantry. And I was able to put together this legacy story that was like four pages I and mean, uh, four feet tall of research. And I sat there and I wrote the book for a year and a half and uh, published it and it sold very well. So that got me started. And um, ironically, I ended up meeting the Patton family uh, because I was over there on the 65th anniversary uh, celebration of D-Day. I was invited by the French government and Washington DC. I got an invite because of my book. And I ended up meeting President Obama, all the dignitaries, Tom Hanks, everybody you could imagine. And I actually ran into and met Helen Patton, who was the granddaughter of the iconic George Patton. And um, I became friends with her and ended up doing another book called Portraits of Service with Helen Patton and another very good friend of mine now, Andrew Wakeford, who lives in Saarbrücken Germany. Him and I are partners on writing. We do a lot of stuff together still. And that kind of launched it all. So you you never know what life's gonna bring you. You just you, you need to be open. And again, it's the story of my life too that I like to translate into some interesting moments.
1: Man, that's incredible. I, I thank, I mean, I don't have a reason to thank you, but thank you for telling your dad's story. That's wow. Thanks. Um, yeah. And, and, and how incredible what you just said too, that you never know where life will take you. You start doing that stuff. You start chasing your passion, doing what you're good at, whatever you want to call it. And you're just, you're, you're open to where life goes and you chase it. And so I think it's a great lesson for storytellers is to, to really hone your skill own and own your craft and who knows where life will take you?
0: Exactly. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to understand that the path you might want may not be the path you will take. Mm-hmm. But chances are, if you set a goal and it's something you want, it will lead to great things. It really does. Yeah. I can tell you that. You know, I, I'm doing what I want, um, but I'm constantly evolving. And um, that's what makes it interesting. And I probably can diverge a little bit um, to kind of communicate the the greatest challenge that I've had in the last three and a half years was actually one that I'm starting to write a story about as well. Um, And I can probably briefly summarize this. Um, When I was in India three and a half years ago with my youngest son, I'm a pretty seasoned traveler and I was very careful because you've got to be really careful in India, you can get very sick very easy, especially with waterborne illness. And we were at an ice cream shop with a very close friend that I've known for years who lives there.
1: And I was a little
0: hesitant because outside the shop, it's kind of like dreams, dreams and nightmares is in the same view in India, especially when you're on the streets. You have cows walking by, you got poverty, you got trash, it smells, it's just kind of like really challenging for an American over there. But you walk into this one little place that is actually clean in the inside. It looks like a Baskin-Robbins and it's an ice cream shop. And he encouraged me and my son to have ice cream, so we did. And um, lo and behold, um, never thinking about things until I found the picture, (laughs) which is another story, an innocent dip of an ice cream scoop in one of the little vats where they kind of clean the scoop off Mm -hmm. with water that constantly flows in. Mm-hmm. was enough to get my son and me almost deathly sick with a waterborne illness because it came from the tap water that's occurring in this little country. It was a little city called Pune, India. And six hours later, we started getting really sick. And it turned out to be we got really, really sick, almost hospitalized. Uh, but I refused to go to a hospital in India because it wasn't the right choice. But thankfully, I was staying at a Marriott and uh, the concierge came to my rescue, and four days later, we were able to leave and fly home. And it turns out to be we both had a real bad case of waterborne illness. My son got better, I didn't. And unfortunately, um, my case became very chronic and turned out to be my large intestine mold my bladder and bored a hole into my bladder, and it created a fistula. And bingo, I was actually passing stuff you don't want to pass in your urine and which required major surgery and a recolon or a resection and i actually breezed through that but i still had an infection And in a year to the date almost i had to have another major operation for my this time my small intestine and bingo uh, i still had the infection so last year uh i ended up having a pick line because of this infection and they finally ridded the infection in june so i've been keeping a detailed journal of a photographic journal as well as a written journal of that obviously endeavor and then to top it all off you never know what life's going to give you in september i was diagnosed with head and neck cancer out of the blue by a visit from my dentist and um, it was devastating to the point where I was actually treated and I just finished treatment. That's probably why. That's why you and I couldn't speak earlier in the last couple of months because I really couldn't talk. And it was the most brutal treatment you could ever want, but it looks like I'm 100% cured, which is the greatest story of it all. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to document every form of the radiation from me laying on the table, getting radiation, doing time exposures, to... Um, writing every day about what it's like and the challenges and i plan on taking that as my next story and writing a book so that others can understand extreme health challenges and having the ability and the positiveness that you need of your attitude to look down the road so that you're not looking at the anguish that you're occurring at that moment you're looking at the greater picture so i'm hoping that i'm going to be able to do that and start that project very soon.
1: So do you see part of your calling, I'll call it as inspiring and teaching others?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, Even though I'm not directly mentoring anybody at this point, I'm hoping that what people see, people read, people know about me, uh, can translate into, uh, how would I say, passion for them. Um, Not to say that I would not help somebody who approached me that said that they needed some help or they wanted some help, they wanted to learn some things. I would definitely, I always believe in giving back. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot you can learn from people, especially if you take the time to watch them. Mm -hmm. And if that's something that you want to do and you're watching them, by all means, you should approach them and learn.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I get the feeling as you're talking about that, you know, to, a couple things come to mind. You're journaling your story much like your dad did, and then you want to share it with others and publish it to inspire. So it just, it just feels like that, you know, mo- like, like and it doesn't feel egotistical. It feels giving. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a difference there. So just interesting. Um, something you said earlier, Robert, that I want to go back to is you... Uh, you said, he's my partner in writing. It sounds like yes. collaboration is maybe important to storytelling. Is, if, it is. Don't, we don't do it by ourselves, right?
0: Um, we can. Yeah. I, I, I do some of it myself, but I, I, I mentioned my partner, Andrew Wakeford. Andrew and I met because of Helen Patton. It was an evening in saarbrücken in Germany that I actually first met him God. Years ago, maybe eight years ago. And instantly I knew he was my age. He's British. He lives in Germany. And he's now my closest friend. And together, him and I conceived in a matter of six hours from meeting each other because that energy and synergy of collaboration was there. And he was a photographer, a darn good one. And I was. And we decided to take some passion and make it happen. So we crafted the idea of Portraits of Service. And Helen Patton had no problem funding that book. So we traveled all through Europe and all through the United States. And we've got about 80 veterans and we did that together writing and photography. It's a beautiful book. It's black and white images of these um, veterans. National Geographic saw that book at a book fair and immediately contracted us, said, we love this. We love your style. We want you, and that's how that happened with that. But Andrew uh, and I (coughs) have done so many cool things together. He's been here, I go see him on a regular basis. We Skype, or actually FaceTime, almost every morning. And together we're working on a couple of new projects. And we were really blessed some years ago uh, to him and I along with an old high school friend who is a pastor who started a very remarkable uh, thing. It's called Fawn. And what it is, is fighting AIDS with nutrition. He literally has been taking Ensure and Boost and through his church been shipping it over to devastated areas in Africa, South Africa, where people's families are devastated with AIDS and are dying. And when these people are very, very sick, they need nutrition because they can't get adequate nutrition. So he started a program and it's pretty successful. He just won a humanitarian award last weekend. And and this whole thing has been taken on now by World Medical Relief. And I'm now involved with that. But Andrew and I actually went to South Africa underneath the fawn. And what we did is we interviewed 30 people. And little kids that were parents both died of AIDS because it was rampant there and it still is. And we were able to understand a little bit more on how AIDS can devastate families and rip them apart and the cultural beliefs that drive all that. So being collaborative, Andrew and I photographed and interviewed and we created some beautiful stories that Fawn now uses to show the world about these type of things so that they can raise more awareness. And Andy and I are actually looking at other things uh, for this summer. We actually um, been approached by, this is crazy, this is a, a very large company that owns 13 of the largest lake freighters that sail on the Great Lakes here. These are iron ore carriers and it's owned by a single family it's been in business a long time and as i mentioned one of my favorite pictures that i've done was that being on a lake freighter on a cold january night as they were going to park this thing for the winter they park them between january and march to do maintenance um so we've been invited i found out to maybe join them for two to three days maybe four days sailing around the great lakes so i can catch the stories of the individual people that run these freighters, which there's only about 18 of them on board. And to take these beautiful shots occurring at night with stars and everything else. And to kind of write this kind of cool story about the life on the great lakes of these people. And Andrew will be a part of that because he will fly over to do that. So that's just in the preliminary setup right now, but it's, you just never know where it goes and that's, that's what I like. It's, it's kind of fun to do these things. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, hey, if you need somebody to uh, document through podcasts, let me know. I'll, I'll go. <laughs>
0: okay. Um. <laughs> great. It might be a good idea. Hey. That is not uh, that is not a far fetched thought. So it might be really cool. They may be very open to that. Yeah. I
1: have, I have always wanted, I, I love the great lake. So I'm, I'm from Michigan, obviously people who listen, <laughs> listeners are, are familiar with that. And, uh, I love our great lakes and I've always wanted to sail the great lakes in some way, but never had the opportunity. But, um, that's awesome. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. So, so a couple of, I could go so many places with this, Robert, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, it it sounds, so whether you're working with fawn or another organization, it sounds to me like one of the things to the organizations need to keep in mind is that stories are so powerful that it's worth the investment in professionals do this and not, I mean, nothing against young people or, or interns, but, but when you want to tell your story and tell it, well, working with somebody who knows what they're doing is so, it sounds like it's important. I would say, would you?
0: I I do. I I agree. Um, Experience is the number one thing that you need. You need some life experience. It's great to be young and energetic and have that passion. I want to do it. And that was me way back when, 30 years ago. But what I realized at an early stage, I didn't have the experience level. It's sort of like you want to build a boat, for example, and you think about that, but you don't know how to because you don't have the experience. And life is the experience that gives you the groundwork to understand how to interface with people and not being afraid to go talk to somebody. Um, You know, I meet people every day that go, wow, how do you... Even my wife has a hard time understanding when I can take my camera out and spontaneously go to somebody and ask them for their picture. She's almost a little embarrassed because that's not part of her demeanor, and that's okay. But people marvel at that. But you've got to have, you've got to have that spunk and you've got to have that drive uh, to do that. You not, you must be able to put yourself out there a little bit more to capture that for a moment with the person and not being afraid that this is silly. If you think that's silly taking a picture, then you don't belong taking that picture. Mm-hmm. You have to feel passionate that you want that picture and, and obviously convince your subject matter if they're gonna be involved in that picture, how to do it. And I think one of the ways I've learned that is that when I traveled on weekends and things, um, I would just go for long walks at different cities around the world with the camera around my neck. And I would take pictures of just what's going on with people discreetly and try to see if I could catch them without them seeing me and become a part of that environment just for a second and then move on. And I have these pictures and I look at them and I kind of love them because some of them are so spontaneous. You understand exactly what's going on. You go, "Ah, I remember when I shot that picture and every one of those little pictures that you do add up to the experience because you'll take those, they go in the back of your brain somehow someplace and you're able to translate those as you carry on and go forward doing other things.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, man. So one of the things I heard you ta- say when you were talking about Andrew, uh, he's also a photographer. It's interesting to me that you don't see him as competition that you don't look at it as, well, we're both going to the same job. You you put your minds together and come up with something greater. How important is that for storytellers to, to think about? Oh,
0: uh, that's a really great point you made. It's really important. I don't look at him as a competition at all. I look at him with a different set of eyes, different set of views, different set of experiences. And most often when he shoots a picture of the same thing I'm shooting a picture of, we end up using both of them and the reason being is that his perspective is different than mine maybe i'm taking a higher picture of a person and he's taking a lower picture of that person from a different angle and what's interesting you you come together and use those pictures but you also let the better picture by a jury of you two choosing decide so in some cases he may shoot better pictures than me and if you're not afraid to collaborate, you get to another level. If you're worried about collaboration and it's got to be me, 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 you're not going to get to that next level. It's going to be all about you, 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 and you don't bring your best work forward. You know, and we have our different strengths, like Andrew's strengths is better, and he's done more work with lighting, meaning that he can use an electronic flash or a series electronic flashes if he needs to, to take that picture much better than I, because I choose to use a flash when I need to. And i like to use more of a available light when I want to. And it's just those subtle things that it's good. You need to have the right person to do that. And I think I'm very blessed that I have that. The biggest impediment that we have is that we live 5,000 miles apart, <laughs> you know? And I miss him and he misses me. and You know, it's just one of those things. But I cherish the relationship because I cherish what he brings to my relationship. And I know he cherishes what I bring to his. And together, you come together to do some interesting things as we do.
1: Mm -hmm. How much of a part does confidence in your work and humility play in that uh, collaboration?
0: Confidence is a really big factor, I can tell you. If you don't have the confidence, you're not going to get that shot. You're not going to be able to get the right story. Mm-hmm. You have to get that confidence. And again, we talked about this. It's how do you get confidence? It's life experience. It's it's being able to understand how you failed at some previous event related to the thing you're doing and being able to take that failure and turn it into a positive. And I think that's, that's the focus that you You've, you've got to remember. And confidence is like, you got to put yourself in your own position and say, I'm going to be the best I can be to get this one project done. And that's what you have to do. And you have to go in there thinking about that when you go ahead and do these stories. Because when you have a camera on your neck and if you're placed in a situation like we might be placed on this big lake freighter coming up and there's 18 people that don't know you and suddenly you're in their environment with a camera around their neck. Some are gonna be open to talk with you. Some might be a little shy. There might be one or two that don't want anything to do with you. But your job is to get all that information on film, every one of them. And so you need to figure out how to interface with these people and how to win their support and loyalty to do this. And that goes with saying, when we do interviews for jobs or we work for our peers and we do anything, It's all about that relationship building. But when you're doing storytelling and photojournalism, you got to kind of do it in more of a condensed form at a faster rate because um, you're not there for a long time. You're not building it up over days generally. You know, you're in and out. So you need to put that smile on your face, have the right words come out, and put your subject at ease that you're just coming into the life for a moment. And you're really happy for that moment and their voice will be heard.
1: How purposeful are you when it comes to that personal development? You said something earlier about constantly evolving and you just said something a minute ago about improving and, and getting better in experience. Has that been a part of your journey on purpose or do you look back now in hindsight and go, okay, this is what I was doing is always improving.
0: Um, I think I I look at it as I'm always improving, and I, if I understand your question right. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I do, everything I do is accumulative, and I learn from the previous event, and I think basically the stuff I'm doing now is even more powerful than the stuff I did three four years ago, um, and it's... And it's learning to communicate more with less, meaning I can probably do things with less images than I've done before. Before I might've needed 10 images. I can get away now with doing it with three or four really powerful images that I know how to set up, or I can see the opportunity to take that picture to get that image. And then coupled with listening and interviewing, because I, you have to interview somewhat we don't talk a lot about that in this hour, but there is interviewing, and it all comes down to a a tact. it all comes down to experience. it all comes down to asking the right questions because you got to remember what picture you shot if you shot the picture ahead of the interview or if you shoot the picture after the interview you got to really tie those together and to me, i've gotten really good at that because experience again has given me that opportunity to weed out what's unnecessary and to focus in what is necessary to make something better. So it's like wine. As it ages, red wine, Mm -hmm. you get better. And I believe that's really true in this. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm -hmm. So that's the way humans, it works.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And And what advice would you give to someone who's a storyteller in some way? And they want to do a little bit of what you do, whether it's, inter- well, let's talk about interviews. Let's go right with that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a better interviewer?
0: Well, I have a hard time with that question because if you're only going out to interview, I didn't get a formal degree in journalism. You know? I, I combined two things together, photography and writing, because I knew that they both had to connect. But I can give enough information if you're going to be interviewing. Um, You really need to understand your subject beforehand or the situation beforehand. If you're going to do something that's planned and if it's part of something that is an end goal, like, for example, when we did veterans, we understood that we're going to get individual stories of points that were really special to them, whether it was horrific, sad, happy, challenging, whatever. And you got to understand what you're going to be doing with that. It's just going to be a book, a pamphlet, series of whatever. And you adopt that interviewing style to that. And I think um, you have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to ask the right questions to let them start to unwind. And one thing I did find out by interviewing people, especially when you're doing stuff that's focused, you got to talk candidly at first to get them to warm up a little bit and then before you know it in in the case of most of these veterans and by the way between Andrew and I we probably interviewed 600 military veterans from all around the world which is an interesting perspective because the ones that had to share some really or wanted to share some really horrific events which we know a lot of them had stories most often it took 20, 30 minutes of just letting them talk and us being casual before they were comfortable enough to really go in and start talking and letting us interview them about the the tragedy or the thing that was really hard for them. It takes that long. And I think if you're starting out in this, uh, women has a tendency to want to get in and get out as quick as possible. And I learned the hard way Getting in and getting out and not taking the time that's needed. You're not going to get the story that you want. You're not going to get the message that this person may be wanting to share. You're going to get the, I call it the pre-rambling or the cursory general overview. That is sometimes okay. But really what you really wanted to do was understand the heartfulness and the sadness or the positiveness you want to understand the gut, the gut feeling that this veteran or person that you're interviewing is going to bring out. So, I think it takes a little time to understand how to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. And it and it takes a whole lot of curiosity, I think, too. That's you know, when you say you don't have a degree formally in journalism, but you're so curious. There's an there's an empathy there to understand someone's right. story, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it is. It's, it's being curious about everything and not being afraid to understand a little bit more. You know, um, I'm curious about everything. And when something like all this medical issues that happened to me, which are beyond me now, I mean, I was one that was curious, but I was one that took charge. And you have to do that in photojournalism. And I researched everything. And people go, wow, aren't you afraid of doing that? I'm going afraid of what? afraid of knowledge to me, knowledge is power. Knowing what I'm faced with gives me a framing ability in my mind so that I can deal with it. Mm-hmm. Not knowing the unknown and just going for it and trying to live it, it's it's hard. It's ridiculous on my part. I couldn't do it. So translating that out, being curious to do the interesting things is is where you need to be, at least that's where I'm at.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Robert, when we first talked about setting this up and, and hearing your story, um, you, had, you had mentioned, you, you know, preparing for it. So you obviously give a lot of thought to, to, to things that you're doing. You don't just go by the seat of your – I mean, you probably go by the seat of your pants from time to time. But yeah. you, you put a lot of thought into stuff. Is there is there a story that you were preparing for this interview with that you really wanted to share that we haven't talked about?
0: Um, God, I think back – um, part of it was actually my dad's story was one, mm. I think back and there is, there's many stories. Um, I'm trying to think it's, it's early in the morning, which is good, but, um, uh, yeah, I I, I believe there is one. Um, I believe it's the one uh, of a gentleman who I met named Brian Forney. And Brian served in the Marines. He was a helicopter pilot. And um, ironically, his parents became our neighbors in northern Michigan. Uh, we have a house up there. And, um, and I got to know his parents. And then I got to know that his dad was a Marine uh, you know, veteran. And two of his sons were serving. And Brian's story is pretty tragic. Uh, Brian is still living, but Brian was on a routine mission in, uh, I think it's Singapore up in Thailand. He was out in that area. And what happened was they were doing touch point landings on the side of a mountain, uh, for, you know, practice. And I guess one of the rotors caught some wind and the helicopter blade went into the side of the mountain. The helicopter flipped over, crashed on that mountain exploded and started burning several guys got out brian was trapped and he was trapped as the flames were engulfing him and he remembers looking at his arm and looking at his leg as it was being burned and he couldn't do anything about it and he was saying his goodbyes and realizing that he was going to be in pain or hasn't been in pain yet but miraculously they were able one of the co-pilots was able to get him out And through, he was burned in, I think, 80% of his body. And um, they did the largest military evacuation that they ever have done, longest, uh, after they stabilized him for a couple of weeks in a variety of hospitals in the east someplace, you know, in Asia. And then they ended up flying into San Antonio, Texas, where he did, a grueling, um, two and a half years, three years of, uh, recovery. And Brian's story after interviewing him and understanding his depth and his detail of his suffering. It, it, it almost made me throw up. It, it, it certainly made me cry and he moved me like no other person has. There's a lot of movement. You know, you get a lot of, uh, emotional movement doing this type of stuff. Mm. But Brian's struck home because I developed a relationship with him. I went to San Antonio, Texas. I met him and it was pretty spectacular. And for me, and it's interesting is that his ability and his involvement. And in fact, Gary Sinise became his friend because Gary Sinise came to the hospital, met him and helped him get through recovery. But Brian's story was, was very poignant to me that really stood out and uh, was, it was pretty awesome that I was able to meet him and I was able to take his words and translate it with visuals from his you know, artificial arm and his struggles at the San Antonio rehab unit all the way down to his artificial arm having a bottle opener in it that he could open up a beer if he wanted to, which was really kind of cool. Wow. You know, those are the things that, that, that moved me. And, you know, juxtaposed to that was another trip in, right across in Livingston, Texas. I'll tell you this brief story. Um, doing the book, Port, uh, Portraits of Service, actually, I started me thinking, but when I did Veterans Voices for Nat Geo, I wanted to understand if there was any military veterans on death row. So I started Googling. And believe it or not, I found one. And unfortunately, this guy named John Dusen was in Texas, and he is certainly on death row, because John had a interesting Iraq career and had lots of military trauma in Iraq, lots. So I said, wow, it might be interesting if I could talk to this guy. And so through a series of letters, emails, lawyers, six weeks, I was eventually granted permission if I could go to Livingston, Texas. So Andrew Wakeford and I flew to Livingston, Texas and we were granted access into death row. And that was a haunting experience. And we met John Thuson for the first time. And John and I are actually pen pals to this day. And um, interviewing John, John has 24, 23 hours of seclusion, hasn't touched another human being in a year Um, has one hour out in the garden that is just a brick wall, you know, with barbed fence that he can enjoy a little workout and gets back into his cell. But John ironically shot his girlfriend and his girlfriend's brother in a fit of rage and a fit of delusional because two or three weeks before that and a whole history of other things, he was being treated for the VA for hearing voices, having trauma blackouts and all that and they just kind of put a band-aid on him and he was being rejected and like most guys in texas they have a sidearm on him and he went into one of these fits pulled out the gun and unfortunately did the deed and killed two people so he was thrown in and tried and convicted and john will be executed which is really sad and john and i uh and andrew we interviewed him and I wrote his story. And I think I sent you that story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And uh, it was interesting to relate uh, for capital punishment and being a war veteran, but he's still going to die and there's appeals and stuff like that. He's not really been sentenced yet for the date. But, you know, it's, it takes 10, 12 years, whatever. But what's interesting is that when I interviewed John and we photographed him through the... Um, the huge thick plexiglass, um, putting my hand up to the glass and putting his hand up to the glass, we were able to connect by the heat traveling through the inch thick acrylic. And it was really kind of surreal to do that. But what was interesting is that I felt his pain. I felt an, a big mistake that he admits that he did. And he's gonna suffer for that and he knows that. But I also understand why that mistake probably happened. And where people can judge people, and you really can't judge because you don't know what their shoes are and what their walk is. But for the first time ever, I realized that John definitely had trauma, a lot of it, over there. And he carried that trauma back, and he wasn't dealt with, and he didn't know how to deal with it, neither did his family, neither did the VA. And he is one of those veterans that sinks through the cracks. Because every day in America, about 20 veterans kill themselves. And that's all directly war-torn. And I'm telling you, interviewing 800 veterans in my career, there's a few that stand out. And Brian Forney is one, and John Duson is another. Even though he is a death row inmate, he still is a United States veteran. He still served his country. And now he's going to be, you know, transposed into some other area as the court seat. Mm-hmm. So those are the stories that mm. stick in my mind this morning.
1: It's it's so, it, I'm such a supporter of our of our our veterans, I'm, no and our, and I've been appreciative of of our military. But it's so sad to me that we send our sons and daughters off to this meat grinder. And then there's nothing, I can't say nothing, but there's very little to help them when they come back. It's just, it's, it's terrifying. It's, Um,
0: it's, it's really scary. mm -hmm. I saw it with my father. And at those times there was no help Mm -hmm. and I see it today and you meet veterans and go, Whoa, it's, it's a different story for them than it is for us.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert, I could, I could talk for hours with you and we have, um, but, but, uh, uh, I won't do that to you this early in the morning. I do want to get to my, my final question in a moment, but I want to give you a chance and listeners a chance to connect. What's, where's the best place for people to connect with, with Robert Miller and, and your photography and your stories?
0: Um, if you Google my name, Robert H Miller, um, I'm in a process, believe it or not, because I don't have it. I do have uh, roberthmiller.com, but I took it down and I'm gonna be putting it back up. That'll be the the closest way, but that's not available now for about another three to four weeks. Um, The best way to do it is I have a SmugMug account, which I have some pictures up there. Um, I don't have a lot of my writings there. You can obviously Google my name and see my books. Um, If a viewer, is very interested. They can reach out to me uh, by using my email, and I will respond. Maybe not immediately, but I all oh, I do respond to emails. Mm-hmm. I hope I don't get 2,000 of them, but then again, <laughs> <laughs> it could be a good thing. You and, never know. Um, yeah, you never know, and that might be the next story. Who knows? But mm-hmm. um, um, I can. You can supply my email, um, which I believe you have, mm-hmm. and and then we can go from there. But I will be obviously putting things up because I wasn't really sure how I wanted to go my next feet forward because I don't need to advertise. Um, I don't need to, because most of the stuff is a one-on-one people seek me out and I've always got enough to do. And um, sometimes I have to turn away stuff. So, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's just one of those things. But if you can Google me, you can find, you can find my books and you might even find a few articles online that are still out there.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'll put links in the show notes for that. Um, sure. So Robert, before we're done, uh, if someone were to tell you tomorrow that you could no longer tell stories, what would, what, what would the last story that you'd want to share to be your, your, your last story? How would you want to go out?
0: Whoa. First off, I'd be devastated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we would. It's like losing an eye if you're a photographer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I think it's my story. I think it's the story that I just talked about, uh, of my, my personal medical, uh, being, even though it's being able to get through something like that and still have the focus and being blessed enough with a positive outcome, which many people are not to be able to continue doing what I'm doing. And I think that's my story because I, I, It was a really challenge. It was a huge challenge mentally, physically. And um, I got through it because of my wife, uh, because of my family. But at the same time, I had an attitude that just wouldn't quit. You know, it's sort of like arrogance to the point of, I'm going to beat this. And that has allowed me to be able to continue my stories. But if that was going to be my last story, And I no longer could do it. I think my own legacy of sharing what I've come through personally and seeing what I've done professionally makes a great story in combination Mm -hmm. to go forward.
1: Sounds like a a great way to end it. Robert, I appreciate uh, your time today and sharing your story and everything about it. So uh, I hope listeners enjoy it. And like I said, the, the links are in the show notes. Contact Robert and uh, follow along. Thanks Thanks again for making the time today, my friend.
0: Dan, it has been a pleasure, and it's always good connecting with you, and I thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: Once again, thank you so much to Robert H. Miller. You can connect with him at the links in the show notes or by Googling Robert H. Miller Photography. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode and think that someone else can get something out of it, please share it with them post it to social media, text it to them, send an email, tell them on the street, however you can get it into other people's uh, hands. Very much appreciated and it helps spread the storytelling craft. Uh, if you want to share your story with me, go to the storytellersnetwork.com and hit contact Dan on the contact page. Send me a note and let's have us a conversation. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it more than you know. Until next time, here's to telling our stories and having stories to tell. Cheers. Cheers.